Thank you. Good morning. I guess it's fitting that since we're going to uh, be in Genesis 6, it's raining today. I didn't like it when a prominent pastor preached and then repeated on national radio his belief that Hurricane Katrina was, in fact, the judgment of God against the city of New Orleans. That New Orleans had a level of sin that was offensive to God because there was to be a homosexual parade there on the Monday that the Katrina came. I did like it when Franklin Graham on uh, Friday morning was asked by CNN Carol Costello, what do you say to people who ask how God could have allowed this to happen? And Graham replied, we don't think God did allow this to happen. He didn't intend this to happen. Our message to the people of Japan is continue to trust in God. I mean, listen to me, I I did like this, I didn't like that. What's that mean? Deep down, I'm defending God. And deeper down, I'm defending me and how I see God revealed in the Bible. And from the comfort of California, we can't really tangle with the question of God's role in Katrina or Japan. It remains impersonal, no matter how hard we try. How different if we live in New Orleans or Kesanuma, Japan. It's personal. And you might say, well, doesn't God hate sin? Yes. But does He use Katrina or the cross? Let's try to personalize this this morning. There won't be a test. You won't be graded. But let's travel to a time of God's clearly stated judgment. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Turn in your Bible and let's read together from verse 1 through verse 9. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, 
and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. This is a very solemn decision. And we read in verses 5, 6, and 7, God saw, God was sorry, God said. God saw, God was sorry, God said. And what he saw was great wickedness. We read in verse 5, every, only, always, every inclination, only evil, always, or continually. Wickedness, the wickedness that was great, is a word in the Hebrew, ra'ah, which means to be bad. Now, when I hear those words, I think of a parent saying to his child, you've been bad. But this is a little stronger than that. To be bad is a condition or state of wickedness. It's like gone bad. It's a corruption of massive proportions. Striving after evil defines humanity. When God says, great wickedness. And what's great in God's estimation is major. Every inclination... An inclination really goes to the root of who we are. It's the impulse. And we're told every impulse or fundamental urge is the root of the problem. And violence, which doesn't occur in verse 5, 6, or 7, but occurs in 11, 12, and 13, in verse 11 and verse 13, violence are the branches. Crime, bloodshed, oppression, rape are expressions of Hamas 
this Hebrew word for violence as it's used elsewhere. What's difficult is that these words are not illustrated. They seem abstract to us. This justification for God's judgment. In verse 6, we're told God was sorry. You recall in chapter 1, again and again, as God created, He looked upon what He had done, what He had made, what He had created, and we're told God saw it and it was good. Now, here, we're told it is not good. In fact, in verse 12, God sees, and this is the next time we're told God saw, God sees, and it is corrupt. The earth as it should be, the purpose for which He'd created it, was corrupted. And we're told that God was sorry. And then we're told, immediately upon the heels that He is sorry, He is grieved in His heart. We're meant to follow the word sorry with the word grieved. It's almost like it explains like it qualifies, like it causes us to focus on what we're to really understand. And we're told that God's heart is filled with grief. And this word for grief is an emotional pain and hurt. It's the kind of emotional pain and hurt or grief that brothers feel experience because their sister has been raped in Genesis chapter 34 verse 7. It's the kind of grief that a father feels and experiences when his son has been murdered as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 19 verse 3. It's the kind of grief of a wife that she experiences, that she feels so deeply because her husband has abandoned her in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 6. I don't know how to sort that all out theologically when God is the one experiencing it, but God is clearly not indifferent. It is painful for God to be God. He's not the puppet master. And we aren't robots. And then in verse 7, we read, I will blot out. This is a word that expresses erasure, a deep and total cleansing. 
When Moses played his trump card, the situation was that his brother, his sister, and the people, while he was on the mountain with God, his brother, his sister, and the people had taken all of their jewelry and fashioned a calf of gold. And they had begun to worship it. And when Moses returned, saw what had happened, he intervened, he mediated. He asked God to be merciful, to not treat them in kind. And he played his trump card. He said, blot me from your book. In other words, erase me from your book. Let me take their place. But what is going on here is not surface graffiti. If you woke up in the morning and discovered someone had taken a paint can and scribbled something on your wall, tagged your, your stucco wall, you'd go out and buy a pressure washer and remove it later that day. But this is deeper than that. This is more like a, a house that God built. And it's been neglected. And a mold and a rot has undermined its structural strength. And as much as you want to save it, the builders tell you it can't be saved. The best thing is it can be raised. It can be brought down and you can start over. This decision, I've tried to give us from the language of verses 5, 6, and 7 with reference to 11, 12, 13. This language is God's justification. This is His defense. This is what He reveals about His decision. And I just, because I've wrestled with this all week, I have a hunch that you, like me, there's just a little bit of you that deep down inside says, I still don't like it. What's going on that's so bad? There must be something more. I mean, let me see it. Let me feel it. Let me understand what it is that is so bad that all of your creation must be blotted out. And some of you, 
maybe because of study, you might say, well, what about verses 1 through 4? Aren't there some clues in verses 1 through 4? You know, the sons of God and the daughters of man. What about the Nephilim? And I must say, it's, it's one of the most highly investigated and thoroughly interpreted verses in the Bible. I was always taught that you never build doctrine on verses that are disputed and highly questioned and uncertain. You couldn't pick verses that are more disputed and highly questioned than verses 1 through 4. Especially when you're looking for a rationale for the flood. When you're looking for a rationale for the judgment of God. When you're trying to find there something that will help us to kind of finally quench what down in the corner of our soul just seems like too harsh, too solemn, too final a decision. Because deep down inside, I think like me, when I hear people speaking for God on national television or national radio or in magazines, there's a part of me that wants to reconcile what I'm hearing with what I know about God from His Word. Not to, not to make myself the absolute authority, but that's the continuing wrestling match that I think we go through as we grow in our faith. Franklin Graham said, continue to trust God. That's our quest. But this is a part of it. Some define sons of God as angels, fallen angels, who have had sexual relations with the daughters of man, producing a, a, a race of, uh, I guess you would call them, perverse giants, Nephilim. Some say that the sons of God are ruthless tyrants drawing on ancient writings of Israel's neighbors where sons of God refer to mighty rulers, ruthless rulers, tyrant rulers for insight as to how we are to read or how The people of God would read the sons of God. And these ruthless tyrants abusing the daughters of men. The first rite of night. These men violating that and taking even the wives of newly married for their own. Some talk of concubines. 
And so these ruthless tyrants become emblematic of conditions. Some say the sons of God are the sons of Seth, and they have married the daughters of men, and the daughters of men are the Cainites or the descendants of Cain. And so when in chapter 4, verse 26, we learn of the birth of Seth after the murder of Abel, and Seth has a son, Enosh. And then we're told that it was at that time that Seth and his son and his sons called upon the name of the Lord. And then throughout chapter 5, we have a genealogy of sorts. And some would say that here then we have the conclusion of the proliferation of the human race being summarized. And the sons of Seth are marrying the daughters of men, and this is emblematic of a turning away from the the idea of calling upon the name of God. And you might say a pollution of belief in God. I can't really do justice to these three views and take you as deeply into their basis in the evidence as I would like. We would have to have many Sundays together. And then we would end up right where we're sitting now. And I have spent the hours. I started weeks ago. But ultimately, ultimately, we're taking verses 1 through 4 as a rationale for understanding the judgment that is stated explicitly and clearly in verses 5 through 7. And we're looking for a footnoting to what God says in verses 5 through 7. We're looking for that reassurance. But perhaps it is, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day of Noah, up to the day that he entered the ark, And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Maybe there's an analogy for us. Maybe how we wrestle with this is somehow connected to how we see ourselves. I've been walking with the Lord for some 38 years. I don't even feel that old. I know a lot more now than I did then. But there isn't a week that goes by and almost hardly a day that I don't in myself feel unworthy. That I don't in myself feel a regret 
because I know that I haven't lived for the Lord completely. And when I look around at the world and the world in which we live, it's sad. I feel closer to those days of marrying and being given in marriage and just going along our merry way. And God is given no thought. And we're in no way, as a people, speaking in solidarity with the human race. We're not really turning to Him, trusting Him, and relying upon Him. Well, whether it's angels, fallen angels, which if I'm looking for justification, I guess uh, uh, I want to look there because I think, boy, there, here's some kind of a perversion of the very essence of creation. But you do need to know that the Nephilim, which are sometimes associated with giants, but they can be associated with the men of renown, there's no direct connection between the offspring I mean, it's not there. Some like to logically connect it, but it's not grammatically there. It's just a, uh, a point in time. It's a reference in time to what's going on. And I just have as much trouble, even if we have these uh, angels, these fallen angels who have taken up and, and somehow... Uh, like an insidious uh, heavenly or supernatural. I mean, these are superheroes, I guess. Uh, But I have a little difficulty understanding how God would bring His judgment upon His creation if these Nephilim or these offspring are the creation of fallen angels. Anyway, I just I have a lot of difficulties with all of these explanations as I, as I lean on the text. But either way, I just don't think there's any justification that we can rely on that will replace God's own decision in verses 5-7 through 7 and 11-13. through 13. But there is another decision another decision of God that does I think justify God in our eyes and in our hearts it is a human justification by the name of Noah have you ever thought that it's only through one saved that this account of God's first decision is known, that there wasn't a second decision, that there would be no knowledge of a first decision. There would be no knowledge of a judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, the curtain will have fallen, and the whole history would be over. You could say without God's decision to save, there'd be no knowledge of any decision to destroy. The whole drama 
exists in the decision to save. The real action is expressed in a very simple formula. Noah found favor. Noah found grace. That's the meaning of the word. You see, this freedom thing wasn't working. This uh, freedom that God has given us, save one, Noah. And we're told that Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations. Some would translate it the story, the account. But these are the generations. In other words, this is the situation. And Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, when you think of righteousness and blamelessness, or blameless, if you're like me, you immediately think, well, that's not me. I wouldn't have even found God's grace. But this righteousness and blameless man was not perfect. Righteousness does not mean perfect. Righteous means covenant-keeping. Righteous means covenant. Now, we don't use covenant, but contract-keeping. This contract is with God. You enter into contracts all the time. When you say, I'll be there, and you fulfill your word, and you show up as you said you would, you're fulfilling your contract. Technically, you're righteous. And we're told that Noah was righteous. He was a covenant keeper. But there's no covenant. Immediately, there's not even any intervening punctuation. There's not even a comma in Hebrew. It says he's righteous, and immediately after, we're told he's blameless. He's righteous, blameless. Which again, I think, is meant to help us understand this meaning righteous. Blameless refers to a person of integrity that seeks to please God. Or would. First covenant is made with Noah. Did God see in this imperfect man? Remember, he didn't have the law. There was no sacrificial system. Did God see in Noah the rudiments of a heart that would respond to him? Did he see in Noah a man that he could make a covenant with? Which is what he does in the verses following. I can identify with a man like that. And I'll bet you can too. God, I know I'm not perfect. 
but just tell me about Jesus and I'll respond. Just tell me about what you did in your son Jesus Christ on the cross and I'll respond. That's what God's looking for. Is a heart that will respond to Him. And He enters into a covenant with this man. This man, Noah. This imperfect man. In fact, there's nothing to suggest that his family wasn't exempted by virtue of his heart. And that through his willingness to walk with God, that his children are also given a reprieve. This man of a non-wicked, non-violent, different inclination. Even his dad, Lamech, said, I've got high hopes for this kid, back in chapter 5, verse 29. And so we're told he walked with God. This expression doesn't occur very often. It was used of Enoch in verses 22 and 24 of chapter 5, which is rather esoteric. But we are told in 1 Samuel 25.15 where it refers to David and Nabal's men rubbing shoulders in the field. They walk together, if you will. It suggests living in close proximity or able to maintain cordial relations. We don't know the nature of Noah's righteous, blameless walk with God, but it's enough on which to build a relationship, a covenant, and a saving grace. And it brings to mind that saying that the exception proves the rule when we think of the judgment of God. Or even when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, how God was looking for just some righteous As you read ahead this week, you're going to learn about the heart of Noah. He was willing to trust God. He was willing to move with God. He was willing to invest faith He was willing to trust and obey. You know, he built that ark to specifications, but I don't think it was the ark that he put his trust into. It was God. Thursday evening, I spoke to, uh, to all the satellite people. They're out of this world. been with them the last two Thursday evenings talking about a worldview and what we're able to see through the Bible because of the Bible the way we see our world the way we see God and the way we see ourselves because of his word and how he reveals himself and the truth that he reveals to us about ourselves I asked him 
Why do you need God? If you need God just for yourself, then God will just become the God of emergencies in your life. We'll turn to Him when we can't handle it. But if you need God because you want to be like Him, in other words, you want to be more than you are. And I know that sounds kind of overreaching. But one thing in the scope of His Word we learn about God is that He is love. That love is principled. So there's always a dimension of judgment. But it's extremely gracious. And as Jesus said, God's command, all of His commands are summed in the great command, in its parts. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So what I was asking Satellite was, why do you need God? Is it all about loving yourself or is it all about loving others? And if it's the latter, you're going to need God a lot. You're going to grow in your understanding of His heart. You're going to draw near to Him and draw upon His strength because you're going to be reminded every time you try to love how weak and mortal and impotent you are. Will you stand with me? I want to walk with God, and I think you do too. I want to be a Noah. Not perfect. But willing to have a heart for God. To hear Him. Noah heard Him. How do we know? I mean, I guess if God is His, his voice is as loud as the thunder, that'll get your attention. But we also are told it's a, it's a small, still voice. And Noah had an ear for that. Do you? Let's walk with God this week. Let's need Him, not for ourselves, but for who God wants us to be like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one man who saves the world. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a closing song. If you'd like to come forward and pray because you want to draw near to God in some way or intercede for someone else or bring before Him your petition or because you just for a moment want to listen to this still small voice of God, we invite you to come. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Noah. Moreover, thank You for Jesus Christ. Thank You 
for being so faithful, so trustworthy, that we can know your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.